Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. Okay, Vienna Farron. She was my discovery. Sarah is a late bandwagon jumper. Um, I think our mom sent her account to me first. She blew me away in this episode. I mean, first of all, we had to cut out so much shit because we started to open up so deeply about every single wound and cut that we've ever had in our entire lives emotionally. And I had to put a muzzle on Sarah. She was okay. couldn't keep her trap shut. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, when you have someone like her on and you're she is a family therapist, you inevitably go there. And then as usual, you silence me. Mm-hmm. But I do think that she would be. I'm very interested in having her be our couples therapist. You're, you're in month. Because I think we need to go to couples therapy, and I think she need be- two for you and Simon. Because I mean, clearly, like you guys need another party. Why do we need another one? I don't know. I just feel like you're difficult. Oh me? You didn't, yeah. Okay, my relationship for no reason. I just feel like you are like Simon is easy and you're difficult. Anyways, let's you, introduce. Okay, so you're saying I need a second therapist by myself? Yes. But, I think okay. so. I think. I okay, think. Well, anyway, let's get to Vienna. Vienna is amazing. She's uh, a licensed family and marriage therapist. She's also an author. Her new book. We talk a lot about it. It is fascinating. It's called The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way That We Live and Love. She really breaks it down. Oh, my God. Just when you think like, oh, a therapist, like, I don't need to listen to this episode. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. There are so many takeaways in this episode. We cover. Well, and she's also available to hire as a therapist. So I'm I'm no, very to get people's like hopes up about that because she seems very popular. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. The episode is great. And Sarah actually doesn't cry. No. Hi. Hi, Vienna. How are you? I'm good. How are you two? We're good. Hi. I'm like mentally preparing Uh to go there. Okay. Sarah's stressed about going there. Sarah's stressed about going into childhood traumas. She's like not in the mood. I just feel like working on yourself is really hard. Yep. And fucking exhausting. And I look for every excuse in the book to cancel therapy. Like I love my therapist so much. He's amazing. And he's helped me so much. But every day that I look at my calendar, I'm like, I have therapy today. I'm like, do I fake a migraine? (laughs) Right. Do I claim? Because it's just really hard to work mm-hmm. on yourself. It is. How often do you use your excuse? How many times do you call it in? Um, well, I think it takes time to realize that your therapist like isn't judging you and that he doesn't or she like yeah. doesn't actually judge you or care or I mean, they care. But so yeah. now I feel safe just being like, I really don't want to talk to you today. So yeah. And he'll just sit there and he'll just like let me be quiet or well, you know, so then I, I like, I, yeah, once you exactly. feel safe, you avoid it less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, we'll see where we go today. Yeah. Well, we've kind of skipped past introducing you, but, um, <laughs> okay. So Vienna has a Instagram account called mindful MFT. And yeah. I don't know how I came across it. I want to say my mom maybe had sent me, um, our mom and maybe sent me some of your posts and then I started following you. And then, I kept finding myself, um, honestly, mostly with my girlfriend, Sophia, because we were always like deep talking about relationships. Um, I realized that everything I was sending her 
were from your account and <laughs> behind this Instagram account is like a real therapist, like a person. Well, and that's the thing is I think we we're getting now because of social media, so much insight and help from people who are not licensed therapists yeah. and who have monetized yeah. through the roof, right? Like we all mm -hmm. need to, we all want to make money. We all need to make money. We all blah, blah, blah. But we're mm -hmm. now seeing these people who really have no education whatsoever behind what they're preaching. And it's just, tough, right? Like, yeah, there's, it's so easy to write a quote that you know will get a lot of traction, right? Like, you know, people will like it. You know, people will share it. It'll be very clickbaity or you write valuable. And it doesn't mean that there aren't zingers, like, right. Of course there are certain things that you might say that are absolutely going to resonate and land, but yeah, this work, I'm a really big believer that if you're not in the actual work yourself. It's, you can talk about anything. You could write about anything here. Oh, when you're having a conflict with a partner, here are the things that you should be thoughtful and mindful of. And it's like, yeah, except it's so layered and so much more complex and nuanced than that. Right. And so I, yeah, I've worked with individuals, couples, and families for over 20,000 hours of therapy, like face to face with people. And that to me really is the education of how there are constraints in relationships, friendships, family, family dynamics that are so much more complicated than a three-step process of how to like breathe better and, yeah. you know, stay calm and communicate clearly and have strong boundaries. Yeah. Okay. So Vienna, as we've said, she's a licensed marriage and family therapist. Okay. So you wrote a book. This is very interesting. And it's, <laughs> I'm like, so in the beginnings of like unraveling all this shit. I am late to mm -hmm. the party as anyone who's listening to this podcast knows. Um, though I do believe it's really never ending. Like what I'm mm -hmm. finding is I don't think this shit's ever going to end. I think it's going to just be a constant, it's constant. Because you're two years in and you feel like you just started. Like that just goes to show you how much there is oh. to dig mm -hmm. through because it's like the first six months is just resistance and like mm -hmm. rejection of the whole thing. And then you start to like, accept a little bit, but then you like slip back into your old patterns and then you, it's like a real process. I have had literally no understanding of why I am the way I am until my mm -hmm. late thirties. Like I always was just like, I, I could never connect the dots. Like I'm only okay, now. You're not so late to the game, honestly. Right. It's like, I hear you and maybe Aaron, maybe you started sooner. Or well, I started at three. <laughs> so I got a head start. Okay. <laughs> Right. But it's like, you are not late to the game. There are so many people who don't do this ever. There's so many people who wait until their deathbed to even acknowledge certain things. Right. It's yeah. like, you're, you're okay. Right. Like you're, you're right in the, you're in the sweet spot right now, but there is, it's, it is a hard thing to look at. We don't want to open Pandora's box. We're afraid of what we're going to find. Is it going to be too much? Maybe we've worked really hard to get our relationships with family to a certain place right now. And the fear of disrupting that is overwhelming. For some folks, their family are no longer living, right? And so the idea of opening something up and not being able to have a conversation with that person is 
disorienting and again, also overwhelming. And it's really easy and common for people to hold the narrative that they did the best that they could, right? And with what they had, and that becomes the excuse or the explanation. We know that they also had complex stories as well, and they did better than their parents did and yada, yada, yada. And those things become all of the excuses, all of the reasons that we want to turn away. We compare our lives to other people who have had it way worse than we do. And sometimes we feel guilty for even saying like, oh, this was hard um, when, yeah, like your life story isn't as quote unquote bad as somebody else's. But all of this, all of those things are distractions away from honoring what your story actually is and the pain that is there. It's like pain doesn't go away whether you acknowledge it or not. It still existed. It still happened. And it's still taking space up in your body, your experience, your mental load, all of that. And so, yeah, we have to find a way to get there. And to your point, Sarah, like sometimes we don't go there right away. You know, sometimes it requires a lot of safety in therapy where eventually you're like, okay, I trust you, you know, or like, I do feel safe enough to open this up and everything isn't going to come crashing down. Or if it does come crashing down, I trust that I have someone in you to kind of hold my hand and walk through the rubble. So I have two things to say before I forget. Mm -hmm. Number one, I think therapy for what it like what it really has done for me overall, and we can dive into my experience and Aaron's experience. Mm-hmm. It's really given me permission to give cut myself a little slack because I think I've internalized so much hatred towards myself and so much like self-esteem issue because like, why am I like that? Why do I do mm-hmm. that? And therapy has made me realize like, it, it's not my fault. Like it's really not my fault. Like, yes, you have to take accountability for sure. But when you have an understanding of your childhood and these things that were instilled in you in such a a young age, you really like learn to cut yourself a little slack. It doesn't mean that you're not responsible for like getting it together and fixing it Mm -hmm. and being better. But it has made me like cut my, like give myself a little bit of a break. And it's like taken a little bit away of my self-loathing. Number two, and I I want to dive into that. I'm really triggered by, I'm triggered by a lot of things, but I'm really triggered Mm -hmm. by, well, he did the best he could. She did. Mm -hmm. No, you fucking didn't. You didn't do the Mm -hmm. best you could. I really am tired of hearing, well, she did the best she could. He did the best Mm -hmm. she could. I don't buy into that anymore. Like, and I want to talk about it because I think that that's a cop-out like when you hear like, oh, well, your mom did the best you could. It's like, well, no, like it's our job before we procreate or in the early stages of parenthood to be better and to do better Mm -hmm. so that we're not doing this shit to our kids. So like Mm -hmm. you didn't do the best you could because you could have done better. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I came in hot today. So I'll let you talk now. Ooh, I like it. Our, to the first point, I, Yeah. So there was a time in my early in my relationship with my now husband, we were in some conflict. I have no clue what the conflict was about. I can't remember it at all. But I remember that I became this like point prover, needed to be right, was like doubling down, tripling down, like couldn't stop. He's like, I got it. I got it. I'm like still going. Right. And I am having this out of body moment experience where I can, I'm watching myself behave this way. I'm like, shut up, stop talking, like let it go. Right. But here I am. I keep going. I'm proving my point. I need to be right over and over and over again. And listen, and I'm a therapist. I'm in this work. Right. And, and I finally had this reflection 
And I think this is so important for people to hear is that our behavior, and listen, I had so much, I had a lot of shame and embarrassment around that behavior. I was also, if I'm being really honest, was fearful that if I didn't find a way to shift that, like, why would anybody want to stay with me if that is how I behave in relationships? And so I worried that maybe he would exit the relationship. But when I took some time to say like, why do I need to be right? You know, like, what is this protecting me from? I was able to trace it back. So so my parents got separated, went through a nine-year divorce process when I was in first grade. Um, it was highly conflictual. My dad's super manipulative, psychologically abusive, gaslighty, lots of paranoia, emotional flooding, just a lot to be around. And kind of fast forward, one of the things that I realized is that in watching the psychological abuse and manipulation go down is that being right was literally safety for me, right? Because him being right was like, he was so quick with his words. He was constantly able to manipulate and and make people feel like they were crazy, right? And so as a little human experiencing this and observing it and watching it, I got really good at tracking things so that I could know what was true and what was not true, right? And so being right and pr- being able to prove my point that my story, what I'm seeing is accurate, was a way of providing safety for myself. And it was traced back to that. And as adults, right? Like we have to step into this more wise, mature adult self that says, okay, I'm no longer in that situation. I can understand why proving my point is a safety mechanism, is a way of protecting myself. But now at this point in my life and in this relationship, if I keep doing that, even though there's a story to it, even though we can all sit here and understand like why I do that, it's going to create a wedge and it's going to disconnect me from the person I love and the person I want to be with. And so when we can start to understand the origins of like why I do what I do, why I behave this way, instead of just being like, you are a psycho and oh my God, like somebody, you know, if you don't behave better, yada, 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 like this person's going to leave you, you can, you can bring compassion and grace, right? Which is what you're talking about instead of just being like, what is wrong with me, right? There's grace and compassion for that little girl who had to watch that and experience that, who figured out how to move through life with safety by becoming a tracker of all the things. So grace and compassion, and then accountability and ownership for the adult self. It's like, uh oh, if you keep behaving this way, you are not going to be able to maintain relationships. So that's from that was one of these like aha moments for me where I was like, whoa, here's this behavior present day. It's not great behavior. It is going to cause ruptures and disconnection, but I need to understand and bring compassion and grace forward to see the origins of why this behavior served something at some point in my life. Hmm. Jesus. I mean, the tracking, the always having to be right. I think there's another layer of it too, which is especially for us. I don't know how it was for you, but for us, Mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for you, but for me, I thank you. We were not allowed to have a voice, you know, Mm -hmm. like we weren't, we were not really allowed to like, it was not an open floor to just really say, how we felt and like what our fears were and what was upsetting to us. Right. So what does that do to you as a communicator? Mm -hmm. I think as adults now we're like, have to be the loudest in the room. And Mm -hmm. I know for me and like have to be heard and have to be respected and have to have like my truth known. Mm -hmm. And that is because of being that Mm five-year-old like you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's like, 
what I, my experience was more like whatever my feeling was, was disruptive. Mm-hmm. Like you feeling that way is inconvenient for me. I don't want to deal with that right now. Mm-hmm. You feeling that way, mm-hmm. you know, makes me feel bad about myself. So I reject it. And mm-hmm. Mm. that really plays into my need to be, to be right is also like, and I'm sure you have a strong opinion on this is like, when you're a child, you really form who the good guys and the bad guys are. And Mm. it was really clear in our world who was good and who was bad. And I always felt like I'm a good person, but I'm being told constantly Mm. that I'm the bad one. Right. You're like, I'm six. Yeah. A six-year-old like, isn't bad. So as an adult, I have a really, 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 really hard time admitting when I'm wrong or apologizing mm-hmm. for being wrong because it feels like I'm admitting that I'm bad. Mm, I was yeah. wrong. I did something bad. I did something bad to you. I reject it. I'm like, no, I'm not the bad guy here. I'm trying, mm-hmm. I'm working really hard to be, I'm a good person. I think of other people. Like if I admit that I fucked up or that I, whatever the thing is that you're accusing me of, if I admit it, then I'm like accepting that I'm bad. And it's like, I'm 40 years old and I still have a hard time doing that over something stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It's like you are describing the experience of always being the problem, mm. right? And that's really convenient for other people because it's a distraction away from them having to look at themselves, right? That's so interesting. Like that is yeah. so fucking eye-opening right now. Like we were always the problem. Mm-hmm. And we're like, but we're we're nine and we're eight. Mm-hmm. Like how can we be the problem? Like, But I'm sure mm-hmm. that happens a lot in a divorce. You tell of me course. you've seen much more of them than we we're have. We're just but, speaking from our experience, but it's yeah. relatable. But like I'm in sure. any divorce, kids are sitting there asking real questions. They're sitting there going, well, why isn't dad at dinner? Well, why didn't you call mm-hmm. him back? Well, why are you making him leave? Well, why mm-hmm. aren't you guys together right now? Well, you know, why is there this new person in the picture? Like, why didn't you include me in that thing? Or like, and why was that person just mean to me? Like, yeah. Why, and so right you're now. asking all these questions that person like isn't prepared to answer. And so you are the problem to them. It's like, yo, stop calling me out on my shit. I'm just trying to like, you know, be with my new girlfriend. Leave, leave yeah. us alone. It's not yeah. causing you problems. Know, I think too, for kids, like our ability to process and rationalize things is not available to us that early, right? So what kids do is they personalize everything, right? We're ego focused, egocentric. And so everything is our fault. And especially when adults aren't saying, no, absolutely not, right? This is, mom is trying to figure X, Y, and Z out, right? Like when we don't have that, whether we believe that or not, it's it's so much easier to then personalize everything. And I think what the two of you are describing, right? Like when you are the problem, we will either, we'll take two paths. The one path is to protect ourselves by making sure that we are never the problem, Right. So sometimes that's that comes out in our, you know, 40-year-old selves, adult relationships where it's like we are defensive, we can't receive feedback because we have to protect ourselves from ever being seen as the problem again because it's so damaging, it's so painful. You're you're brought back into contact with the feelings and the emotions that were present as little humans who are eight or nine years old, feeling like the problem, the immense sadness and shame, whatever feelings and experiences you had, right? So you can either go there 
or you absorb being the problem, right? So like you then have an issue with feeling worthy. You are always the problem. You are bad. So a lot of times it can kind of shift into that victim space where you absorb that as the truth and constantly find yourself in that. It sounds like the two of you took the path of opposition of like, we cannot be the problem. That is what makes us feel safe now in our adult relationships, moving through life. But opposition doesn't integrate things. So when we just move and swing the pendulum all the way to the other side, it doesn't actually heal the original pain. So what I talk about in the book and why this work is so important is like when we have unwanted patterns in our relationships, the ones that we can't find a way to shift or change, it the work for me is about going back to the original pain, right? That which is familiar to what's playing out here. So I talk about five wounds in the book, which is worthiness, belonging, prioritization, trust, and safety. And going back into these spaces where we get to witness the little selves who were told we were the problem. And because otherwise the adult self is constantly trying to prove that you're not, right? You're constantly Mm -hmm. trying to hold the position that you are not the problem. And the problem with that is that we then reject feedback from others. Mm. We can't hear. Other people will never feel heard or understood, right? We have to find a way to prove our point because that's what safety is like. So you might even think about like, what's the feedback that you get from each other, your partners, friends, family members, and start to click in of like, ah, right. Like this is such a protective mechanism for me to exist in this way. But what it doesn't do is bring me back to the original pain where I need to witness my Mm. little self. I need to grieve the fact that I experienced that, right? That the adults weren't able to own or acknowledge what they needed to at the time and to spend some time in that grief so that you can create changed behavior now. Because if we keep doing dysfunctional patterns and we keep choosing behaviors that disconnect where we can't move through conflict in a healthy way, right? Like that's going to strip away at our relationships. We're really alienating, right? We're alienating all these other people who are not privy to our internal battle. So it's like, if I'm at work or with a friend or with a partner or a family member or whatever, and my internal thing is what we're talking about, they don't fucking know that. So, Mm -hmm. so they're not going to have respect for, Right. I'm like, but no, this is like what I'm going through. There's a reason that's not their problem. They're like, what are you doing? And it's so crazy being like being in a relationship with someone who had a really healthy childhood and had all their needs being met because like I could say to Simon, like, uh, did you text that person? Like you weren't supposed to say that. And he'll be like, Mm -hmm. oh shit, my bad. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that was just easy for you to just admit. He's like, oh, shit, I'm sorry. I didn't realize mm-hmm. I did that. Or I'm like, oh, you said this thing and it hurt my feelings. Oh, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. I love you. I wouldn't do that on purpose. And I'm like, I'm, yeah. I watch him. Like, I study it. I'm like, who does that? Who can just, like, uh-huh. take feedback like that and, like, not decide, oh, because I did a bad thing, I am bad. I am now a bad person. Someone who doesn't feel like they have to be right. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, without knowing much of his story, right, it's like someone who didn't feel like he was the problem. You know, it's like there isn't a story there. His pain is different than your pain, right? Mm -hmm. Period. And Sarah, like, 
in partnership, right? Or like in any type of intimate relationship, I would say, I would want us to know each other's stories and our internal worlds, right? It's like, you probably do know quite a bit about your partner's family and their story. And like, that is so important. But when we come at it blind, right? When we're not aware of what could be playing out in a particular moment, then we're just fighting about the thing or we're just frustrated about the thing. And we're not taking into account that, okay, there's a big story that's showing up in this moment. There also might be a big story for the other person showing up in this moment as well. And how, basically, how are our unresolved wounds playing with each other in this space, right? So that's the work. Right? That's that's the work that we dive into. It's not easy. There's layers to it. There's complexity to thinking about another person and what me- might be going on in their internal world when mm-hmm. they're reactive or they're, you know, behaving in a way that you don't understand. But when we can remember that there's more to the story than what is presenting right now, that often gives us a path into learning more about what's showing up in this moment. Mm-hmm. That's from the past. Athletic greens, we have discussed many times. I don't times. even know what else to say. The thing that I'm most impressed with is that they continue to evolve their um, product. So it doesn't just stay what it was two years ago. As science evolves and as we learn more and more about what people are needing, um, they evolve and they add those things into their mixture. So just know that every time you're buying AG1, it is constantly evolving and having the things in it that people are the most efficient in for that time. So as a reminder, one tasty scoop of AG1 has 75 vitamins. Being minerals. really hockey, okay? This is my... I'm, I'm in the middle of speaking. I know, but you're just like very chatty chatty when Athletic Greens is kind of my my vibe. Okay, well then you know what? Take it away, Sarah. Okay, so I, I had a thought. It wasn't a thought, but I wanted to I say... I was literally in the middle of explaining what's in the scoop. Do you want to do that for me? I understand, but I don't want to jinx it, okay? I don't want to jinx it. But everybody in my house was sick a couple weeks ago. Everybody. Everyone at the cold, the sore throat, everybody. I was the only one that did not succumb. And I am the only one, Tommy doesn't take it, the kids don't take it, um, that did not get sick. So in one scoop, okay, one scoop, you get really everything you need. Instead of having to do like 50 capsules where you're like, oh gosh, you know, swallowing pills is annoying. It is one scoop. And in that one scoop is 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients. That includes a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one serving. How do they get that all in one serving? And it tastes good, by the way. It's like not even bad. Mm -hmm. It really does. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash foster today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash foster to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, listen, Aaron and I have been very transparent with you guys. We've been very honest with you guys about how therapy has changed our lives, okay? Therapy has um, put us in a position in life to have healthy relationships, to like- Well, you're you're still working on yours. I'm there, but you're still getting there. Well, huh. you need a lot more. So true. You are, you are really killing it over there with your- Thank you. 
with your perfection. Thank you. Um, I don't think you're ever going to not need therapy. And I don't think I'll ever not need therapy. I mean, listen, maybe there will be a day, but it is an ever evolving process, our mental health and taking care of it. So it used to be that therapy was really only for like rich people. It was like you had to like really have a lot of money to have access to therapists and to better yourself. But companies like BetterHelp have changed that. Companies like BetterHelp have made therapy accessible to everybody, which... um we love businesses like that. Um, yeah, I love that BetterHelp is just making therapy easier for people to access yeah. and more affordable and more convenient because there's nobody that should not be able to do it. No. Um, no when, you're, you when, out, you're, when you're at your best, you can do great things. You know, really everybody, by the way, everyone gets depressed. Everyone gets overwhelmed. Everyone struggles to be productive enough. And like everyone needs, you know, help feeling empowered sometimes and help just making changes. And so we really support you reaching out to someone at BetterHealth because it's, better health. It's also very easy and convenient that you literally fill out a brief questionnaire. And then from that questionnaire, you get matched to a licensed therapist that makes the most sense to you. And if it's not working, if you don't feel a connection, they'll switch you to somebody that is a better fit for you. They really exactly. do make it a very easy and seamless process, which let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash foster today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash foster. You say that pain wants to be healed. It's desperate yeah. to be healed. It's there to be healed. Mm -hmm. It's just like a matter of what, when, like that is our yeah. work. As That's you said. our work, right? It's like pain's not out to get us, right? Like pain isn't out to destroy our lives, right? Our wounds are tugging at us, right? Because they want our attention so that we don't have to keep looping through the same patterns that keep reminding you, yeah, you are fucked up and you are the problem, right? Like that pain doesn't want to ruin us right? It wants to be healed. Our wounds want to be witnessed. They want to be addressed. They want to be felt. They want to be experienced. They want to be grieved so that we can then choose differently and have the resolution that we're craving, right? Resolution changes the way that we live and it changes the way that we move through our relationships, right? Like that's the gift. I know it can be hard to see it when we're in the like mess and thick of it, but that's yeah, like that's what I have seen over and over and but over I like, again. But I like how you give the pain its own, like it's like a third party because mm -hmm. when we react to something negatively and we're not proud of how we reacted to it or how it triggered us, we personalize, oh, I'm awful. I'm bad because I raged at that person. I'm bad because I reacted because I got defensive because I acted jealous because I was competitive. But when you, when you say like the pain wants to be healed, the pain wants the attention, it kind of helps... It, it, it's interesting when you can, and I think it seems like it's healthy when you can give the, your trauma and your pain, its own identity. It's not you. It's something that you have to learn to resolve. And it's, it's maybe outside of yourself. Like I notice when I say to Simon, like what you did that thing. And he'll be like, it's so weird that I did that. I wonder why I did that, but he doesn't really like personalize it. It's more like, Oh, I'm fascinated. Like, I wonder why I did that. Cause that wasn't my intention. God, he really is so healthy. I know it's so annoying, mm -hmm. but where, where if I have that conversation, <clears throat> I'm like, Oh, I'm bad. Cause I did that thing. But there's something yeah. about the way you talk about the pain as like this third entity that almost helps be able to look at it. 
Cause you don't feel like yeah, it's, it's you like the externalizing of it. Right. Where it's like, okay, now I'm like looking at you in the eyes. Like, what do I need to learn about you? What do I, like, yeah. how do I get curious about you and recognize that this is just a part. It's not all of me. It doesn't identify me. Right. It doesn't make me bad. It does, but that's what your challenge is, right. Is that everything makes you bad. Everything makes you the problem. It's so easy for you to go there because that's the familiar narrative that you carry and you hold, but that's the big struggle, right. Is to challenge that part. And I do think externalizing it to say, okay, it's hard for me to accept that I'm not the problem at the core, right? Like in the pain, right? It's like when you go back, there's a lot of data points that suggest that you were. And it's really hard, I think, especially when those messages come from parents, because as kids, we're like, you guys have the answers. You are the people who are supposed to love, guide, nurture, protect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're the ones who are explicitly or implicitly telling me that I'm bad or the problem, it must be true, right? Because like, why would you lie to me? Like, why would you tell me that? And so anybody else saying like, no, you're good or no, you're not the problem. Like that, that's hard to accept, right? Especially when you have decades of believing it. And so there is this need to begin to work with that part outside of you because otherwise it just takes over fully and you're right back in the pain of, see, I am the problem once again. See, I am this Think about how many who- kids grew up thinking they're the problem. Like, like think about yeah. it. Like mm-hmm. a parent, one, you know, you mm-hmm. kids blame divorce on themselves. Mm-hmm. Kids blame a stressed parent on themselves. Like, mm-hmm. like, like it's go- so much more than just like, oh, like our dad, you know, and our mom broke up. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. most, like just thinking back. Are we all thinking about the Taylor Swift song right now? It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. She probably blames mm-hmm. herself for a lot of things. Uh-huh. Get, get her into but this conversation. By the way, there's a reason why that's like such a big trend is that everybody like feels that way about everything. It's like, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, Taylor. Wow. But it's really hard to mm-hmm. profound admit <laughs> you're the problem. Or it's e- it's hard to admit you're not the problem. Or it's hard to admit you're not the problem. Like that's what Vienna's yeah. saying is like you get stuck in this narrative, whatever the thing was. Like take us through some other things that other people, maybe if people aren't responding or aren't relating to being told that they're a problem or feel like they're the problem. Totally. What are some other things that we bring? I mean, there's a million things. There's um, so many, but yeah, let's go get, let's go through a few because I think it's going to resonate for a lot of listeners, right? So like the worthiness wound that I talk about so much of what happens in worthiness is about the conditions. So if you were a people pleaser, a perfectionist, a performer, right? If you needed to get the straight A's, if you needed to be a phenomenal athlete, if you needed to be more quiet, if you needed to be the comic relief in order to get love, connection, validation, presence, attention, right? Like that creates the conditions for your worth, right? So am I worthy? Am I good enough? Am I deserving? Okay. So the performers, the perfectionists, the pleasers, the peacekeepers, right? Like those folks are going to really resonate with a worthiness wound. Who do I need to be in order to be loved and chosen by you? What the hell? So now I have two of them. I thought I was only going to have one of them. I got to tell you, the people who have read the book early are like, is it possible to have all five wounds? Uh, <laughs> no so wonder I'm it so is possible. I felt like I had to be like the pretty one. Mm-hmm. I had to be like, you know, like, oh, well, that's how I'm going to get attention. That's how I'm going to get right. love because I'm going to be like 
the pretty daughter mm-hmm. and the one that is like out there and being like dynamic and blah, blah, blah performing mm-hmm. like its own, yeah. its own, yeah. its own, like, Oh, that's how I feel worthy. That's how I feel seen. That's what's gonna. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah and I had to be the comic relief. No wonder getting old. So yeah. fucking hard. Uh huh. Listen, right. I always think about this because Sarah mm-hmm. is having a much harder time getting older than I am. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, it seems it's obvious. Like you look at it and it, you get it. Like Sarah has always been told she's really beautiful. That's the thing she was validated for from birth. And well, it wasn't not really from birth. No, like even when you were a kid, like it was just but like, early. there was something that people were always complimenting her like beauty, yeah. even as a young kid. True. Mom did get stopped on the street once to ask <laughs> for me to go and read Justin Kelly to get my hair cut. <gasps> That's true. I mean, there were other girls on there as well, but yeah. Um, but, but I can see how now as an adult, it's like you look at Sarah and it's like, it's crazy because she's still so beautiful. But for her turning uh, a different why age, are you I didn't say to a number. Ages. I didn't it's say like, number. Calm down, honey. You, you just brought it up. You oh. said getting older right, is harder well, We're going to edit you. this out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see? She doesn't even want to admit she's getting older on the podcast without even a number. No. But that's the fear, right? Is like, if my beauty fades in some way, like what do I have to contribute? Like where is, where is my face go? Yeah. You might be able to like in theory be like, no, of course, like there's more valuable things that I can offer into the world. But like, again, when that's the feedback loop that you've had for decades, right? It's like, of course it's scary. Of course it's confronting because at the core, right, you have been validated and loved and all the things because of beauty, right? When I, one of the things that I write about in the book was when I was really easygoing and agreeable, my dad was super helpful, would pick things up from the grocery store for me if I need them, like do things for me, a real like acts of service guy. When I was difficult, what he would do is he would punish by giving me the silent treatment. So he would stop talking to me for days or weeks sometimes. And so I started to learn, right, that like to be just be super easygoing, don't have needs, don't be disruptive, be fine with everything. Part of that's also tied to the divorce where I like flying under the radar, became a needless little girl because there was too much going on. But I learned, right, that the condition of support, help, love, connectivity, presence was just be cool. Don't need anything. Don't be disruptive, right? And so it's like, again, to think about the different conditions that you learned got you certain things that you wanted versus who you might become or, or yeah, like if you weren't the comic relief, like where was your connection? Where was your validation? Who was laughing? Who was paying attention to you, right? And so, yeah, the worthiness wound is a really common one. I talk about the belonging wound. So a lot of times families will have this storyline of like, in this family, this is how we do things, right? It's like, this is what we believe, right? This is how we act. This is how we present to the world, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't do that, you're on the outside. Now there's beautiful parts to belonging, right? It's like families who have certain traditions that everybody loves, that are lovely. But there's also this sense of like, you have to trade your authenticity to be a part of us. And if you don't, you're on the outside, right? So again, like this, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about how kids have 
like the two lifelines are attachment and authenticity, right? But if attachment is threatened, we will trade authenticity in a heartbeat, right? Because our our survival depends on it. So we lose, we don't learn that it's okay to just be ourselves, to believe what we want to believe, right? Like that it's not just if I don't absorb your stance on everything that you're going to reject me, that you're going to cut off connection. There's some conditions to it as well, of course, kind of similar to worthiness. Um, but so, you know, that belonging wound can be a real doozy. And we all have labels. We all have labels. Like the siblings, we are all labeled who we are, what I'm the disruptor. I'm the one that has a problem with everything. I tell everyone how I feel. Everyone knows how I feel. I'm difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I will not stand for this. When everyone's like, well, I don't fucking know. Like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm like, well, I fucking will. This is fucking nuts. You know? And, and, and Aaron's got her role. Jordan's got her role. And it's like, no one's really come out of that. But with the belonging wound, you either adapt, right? And like kind of adopt the way the, you know, gospel, Bible, whatever, right? Or you can become, you can take a path of rebellion, right? So it's like oftentimes it's the black sheep, the um, the different one, you know, in the group. And when we're really tiny, we try to fit in because like that feels like survival, but then there can be a time where we swing that pendulum and we rebel and we're like, I'm going to speak out. I'm going to dress differently. I'm going to, I'm going to do all the things you don't want me to do. And we go in that direction. So when was I late the black sheet? What age? I mean, I don't know. At a pretty young age, you wanted nothing to do with us. So like, what does that do? Because obviously no one wants to be the black sheep. It's not like I wanted right. to be the black sheep, but I also didn't want to condone the behaviors mm-hmm. of my family dynamic, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like, what does that do to the psyche of someone of my age who now is a mother to two daughters, a partner mm-hmm. in a relationship of 16 years? Like, what does that do to somebody? Because I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of people listening to this are also the black sheep. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think again, when I was saying before the, that path of opposition going in the rebellion space is like, what does it actually look like to integrate it so that it's not just like, I'm an outsider. I don't fit in. I'm, I'm super different. Like what, what do you see play out in your family, your fa- like the, the family system that you've created with your, with your partner, partner well, in terms of belonging? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. And it's like, this is a whole other episode or I need to go away to a place <laughs> for sure to like figure all that out. But I have, I I do think that I'm a really good parent and I really think that I parent, I try to give them as we all do what we didn't have. I give mm-hmm. unconditional love. Like that is mm-hmm. numero uno because I did not grow up with unconditional love. Yeah. So it was conditional. I had to do, be a certain way to get love, right? So mm-hmm. I am like, I go so the opposite with my girls. Um, I also subconsciously, I think, have gone out of my way to make them never feel like they're the problem. They could spill something and I'll be like, no, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. Like, it's fine. Like, let, we'll get through it. Like, we'll clean it up. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I know I'm fucking them up for sure. I just mm-hmm. don't, 
I'm not sure exactly how, but I know I am. Yeah. I mean, like there might be a little bit of the overcorrection, yeah. you know, that happens where it's like, I want so badly to make sure that nothing ever happens to them. Right. And so you kind of like go all the way out there. Yeah. Like we are, of course, we're going to fuck up our kids. Like people are like, how do, what do I do to make sure that I don't, you know, screw up my children? Um, I'm a mother as well. So I, I, I know the, uh, <laughs> the pressure of that. But what I say to people is, your commitment to resolving what's unresolved is the greatest gift that you can give your children. You are going to screw up. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to overdo something. You're going to try to protect them from things by going all the way above to the other side. You're going to let them down. You're going to disappoint them. It's going to happen. But when you can take uh, ownership, when you can acknowledge things, when you can keep working on resolving the stuff from the past, like that is going to eliminate the things that they have to continue to work on. They're here in an imperfect world in an imperfect family. They, they're going to sit on their therapist's sofa at some point, you know, 15, 20 years from now and talk about the things that they need to resolve. Your, your job is not to create a perfect environment for them. Um, but it sounds like you're doing the work, honestly, to try to minimize as much of that for them as possible. Oh, they definitely do not have a perfect environment. And I think I also resist doing couples therapy. I mean, I'm in a relationship of 16 years. I think I resist at the fear of it not working out, right? Like I'm 16 years with this person and over my dead body, are my kids going to have to like be shuffled back and forth to houses and Mm -hmm you know, have to potentially like deal with other families and other children. Mm -hmm. And it's traumatizing meeting new families your whole life. It's Mm -hmm. traumatizing getting introduced to new women, new kids, new this, this is your family. You have to love these people. That is Trump, but that is really like a lot. So for me as a parent, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, Tommy could be like cheating on me with like 50 hookers and I probably would just stay because I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't want my kids to have to, you know, have to deal with, with that, right? Obviously Mm -hmm. this is not healthy, but I'm just saying like, we are all just trying to give our kids a life that we didn't have and avoid them having the life that we had. And sometimes to their detriment and our detriment. Totally. Right. And like, you know, hopefully that's not the case. That's what's playing out. The 50 hookers? You know, it's, I think to your point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we all hope so. But to your point, though, sometimes the fear of recreating something for our children keeps us in something that, again, this is not about your specific relationship, but for somebody listening, right? Like it might keep them in a really unhealthy relationship because they're trying to avoid the outcome that feels so intolerable to them, right? Because it was so traumatizing or it was so disruptive. And it, it it's hard to imagine that there could be a different experience that plays out. So for example, not everyone has that same story just because their parents went through a divorce. Some people feel so blessed that they have new siblings or a step-parent whom they love deeply, right? So it's really specific to the fact that yours was so painful, right? That yours was so traumatic, that it was not handled and taken care of in a way that helped you feel safe, loved, connected, prioritized, et cetera, right? And so with that unhealed pain, right? It's like you could possibly stay. And again, this is not 
relevant to your relationship right now, but someone could possibly stay in a really unhealthy relationship and an abusive relationship because they're so afraid of recreating what it is that they experienced. So the, the, the question is like, at what expense, you know, and when we have irresolution, oftentimes it's that wounding that's in the driver's seat, making decisions for ourselves, for ourselves and our family, as opposed to our healing. And so would the answer to that be, okay, instead of staying in a relationship that's bad for me and exposing my kids to that, which is a whole different trauma, instead, Mm -hmm. then we can do it differently than our parents did it. You amicably break up. You you ingratiate yourself with the other person's new partner. You insist that you continue being a family and having family dinners and being respectful of each other and embracing, you know, new partners that each other have and like listening to your kids and hearing when it's frustrating for them or accepting if they don't like the person that you're introducing right. we them to. We know so many healthy modern families. We actually know yeah. so many of them. Yeah, I think that's her point is like, just because that was our experience doesn't mean that you mm-hmm. never get a divorce because that's always gonna what it's gonna be like for your kids. You give right. them a better version of that if that's what's right for your family. Yeah, I mean, right. Like what you just described is ideal, mm-hmm. right? And I think the risk for some people is when the pain hasn't really been addressed, then it's easy to go to what Sarah was just describing right? Like I can, I cannot even tolerate the idea that my children would have to go through this. But what it eliminates is the fact that we as parents, as adults who love these tiny little humans in the world can be really connected and attuned to making sure that they feel worthy, that they belong, that they're Mm -hmm. prioritized, that they can trust us and that they're safe in this world. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we choose you know, again, when the pain isn't resolved, then that's the thing that winds up choosing for us. So yeah, what you just described would be ideal and it it exists. It also doesn't exist, right? And like, sometimes that's the most horrifying thing for people is like, they know that they can't stay in something, but they also know that they're never going to be able to have joint, you know, holiday dinners with their ex. And it's not going to be this lovely you know, kind, thoughtful experience. Okay, here's, here's, I get very overwhelmed when I go to the grocery store now. I'm very overwhelmed. Like, you know how like, so when I go to the grocery store, I'll buy like, oh, another two things of rigatoni. And then I'll get home and I'll see that I have eight rigatoni already in the pantry. I'm just, I'm disorganized. So we love this company, Hungry Root. Not only does it, um, deliver your groceries and all those things, but it gives you recipes. So your groceries can reflect the recipes. You're not going and buying eight onions when you really only need two onions. Makes sense to you? Yeah. I mean, I don't ever accidentally buy eight onions, Um, (laughs) but I hear what you're saying. I hear the message of what you're saying. Do you think grocery stores are more overwhelming because we have options like Hungry Root or are they just like more overwhelming? No, I think that they're overwhelming. And there's also like all these exciting recipes out there that you want to follow. And it's hard to just shop for those things. And that's why Hunger Root is great because it'll give you just the recipe ingredients that you need. And, you know, it helps actually put your groceries to good use before they get stuck in the back of the fridge and then nothing gets eaten. I mean, I waste so much food. I'm like ashamed of how much Yeah, this is a very forward-thinking way to grocery shop and cook made it just like goes way beyond your weekly grocery haul with thousands of easy recipes that actually put your groceries to good use um and the best part is that everything they offered has like a really simple standard it's just good taste 
quick to make, contains whole trusted ingredients that are high quality. Also, you can take a fun short quiz and then they get to know you and your goals and how you like to eat and what flavors you like and which kitchen appliances you like to use. And then they keep it top of mind and then they start helping you build your carts. They kind of like do the thinking for you. Right now, Hungry Root is offering you guys 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life, which is crazy. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash Foster to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That is HungryRoot.com slash Foster. Do not forget to use our link so that they know that we sent you. Nice, best, best. Okay. Our mom always says, and we do, you know, she loves a reference on here. She loves a clang moment for herself. Um, she also told us that she listens to the ads, which we appreciate. I know. She's so supportive. Um, is she buying any of that? The, the, the merchandise? She uses our codes, girl. Yeah, okay. So she always said, and she's right about this. She She's like, when you go to the airport, pick your poison. You can't like dress sloppy the way you do and have sloppy luggage. Pick your poison. If you want to dress sloppy, have nice luggage. So you actually look like your life is in. She would prefer us to dress nice and have nice luggage. She would prefer us to have both. But, you know, I mean, the way we dress at the airport is crazy. Yeah, you can't have it all. Yeah, and base just sort of elevates the whole vibe. It's kind of like the go-to luggage that uh, that everybody's using. That what's the bag? The Weekender. Everyone's getting that. I weekender. love the Weekender. I have Absolutely. a um, like the the tan colored Weekender, and also the navy Weekender is really nice. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors. We talked about the Weekender. Everyone says the Weekender is just the most functional. That's sort of like uh, it's sort of the the feedback. Okay, they have. 30,000 five-star reviews. We have a company. You can't buy that. You can't fake those. You can't fake the reviews. If you we could buy them, Sarah would have bought them by now. I would have bought them. I would have deleted the negatives, kept the positives. You can't buy that. They have 30,000 five-star reviews. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash foster. Go to basetravel.com slash foster for 15% off your first purchase. That is B-E-I-S travel.com slash foster. All the things that Sarah was just talking about, how like introducing, being introduced to new families all the time when we were growing up, like one of the ways that it played out in my life was that when I got together with Simon, who's so close to this family, he was like, my parents are your parents now. My, this is your this. And I was like, what did you just fucking say to me? I don't need new parents. I don't need another family. I decide who my family is. I, yeah. I was like so like enraged at this idea that someone else was deciding who my family was. And like, oh, you have new family members. You have new parents. You have new siblings. You have new cousins. I was like, no, 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 no. I've been down that road. I'm done. Yeah. I have enough family. I got more than I want, actually. Right, I was right. like so offended by it. And Simon was so confused because he's like, okay. I just thought it was like our dream that like, <laughs> you're, you know, your nieces are my nieces now and your sister's my sister. Like, and nope. He would like call Sarah his sister. And I'm like, why are you calling your sister? It's not your sister. It's your sister-in-law. He's like, right. why do you want to create this, this distance between us? Which uh -huh. I didn't want to create distance. I just was trying to like protect this thing from repeating itself, which mm -hmm. it wasn't the same thing by a lot. Right. Right. But when you understand your story, that all makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you had all of these people coming into your lives, families constantly changing, right? All of that going on. And you're like, yeah, that's a destabilizing thought to explore with it, right? Where you're just like, yeah, I guess in theory, we're becoming family and get that, but I don't want anymore because of the past. When you come into a, a, a built-in family, 
you come in showing respect to a family that's existed, that has predated you for a very long time. You know what I mean? So it's all too, like, Erin is always said, she's like, I don't know what kind of stepmom I'd be, you know? And I'm like, oh, I'd be the world's best stepmother because I know exactly what I would have wanted, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. like a whole, that's a whole other can of worms. But like, I, I just honestly don't think I'm healed around it enough to be a good yeah. stepmom because I think that yeah. whatever happened from our childhood, it's really hard for me to share people. And yeah. it's hard for me, like, I mean, early in my and Sam's relationship, like I was like jealous of his three-year-old niece. And I was like mm -hmm. annoyed at how much he loved her and how much mm -hmm. time he wanted to spend with her and how he talked about her. And I was just like, uh, I, I'm your family now. Like, yeah, I'm your family. And so I yeah. look at that and I'm, and I obviously am today, I'm like, oh my God, I'm mortified that I did that. But as a stepmom, I think I would just have a hard time. Like you have to really share someone with a lot of other mm -hmm. people that kind of have to come first. Yeah. Well, and what a thank you for the alley-oop because the third wound that I talk about in the book is the prioritization wound, mm. right? Which is like wanting to feel like you are important in that other person's life, right? And like, that's what was getting activated is like, if I have to share this, right? That insecurity, am I a priority to you? Am I the most important to you? Like, how do I do this? And especially again, with your origin story of having to share so many people and you know, maybe having to perform to get that attention and the validation and the love, right? It's like, it makes sense why there was jealousy there. The prioritization wound, you know, often happens when we have a parent who is a workaholic or there's addiction in a family, or there's a mental health challenge that takes up a lot of space and energy in a family system. It might look like the conflict between the two adults being something that's just like constant and the focus or, um, you know, a parent after a divorce, maybe dating constantly and being fully engrossed in their own life experience that they're not even asking about what's going on in your life. But, and I talk about this example in the book, a client of mine who had a single mom, she worked uh, two jobs, double shifts every single day. He loved and respected his mom so much. They only got to spend Sunday mornings together, went to church and then brunch afterwards before she'd go off to her next shift. And he, in in the sessions, you know, he he could really rationalize that like what she was doing was her way of prioritizing him, right? Like she's giving everything she's got to make sure that his life is set up, but it didn't change the fact that he still wanted to be prioritized by her through time spent with him. It was so hard because it's like, and I, and this is an important thing for people to hear is that a lot of times we think that wounds have to come from these like negligent, abusive, malintended places, but sometimes wounds come even when people are doing their you know, and I, to your point, Sarah, we'll have to come back around to it. But even when somebody is doing the best that they can, well, it sounds like this no woman momentum. was doing the best she could. Yeah. Right. It's like, she's hanging on, she's giving everything she's got, but you know, there can still be a wound because he doesn't get to spend the time with his mom that he wants to have. And so back to the wounds though, right? Like the prioritization one is I want to feel important and I don't feel like I am in this person or these people's lives. And so what might that look like is that we could choose partners or friendships where we are still deprioritized. So even if it's not apples to apples, right? Like if you had somebody who was an alcoholic as a parent, you might be very adamant about never choosing someone who drinks, for example, but maybe you wind up finding somebody who doesn't drink, but 
works a 90 hour week, work week. Um, you find ways, you find yourself in relationships where you still become deprioritized, right? And that's that's a really common kind of repeat pattern that people will find themselves in. Or you're like this person who prioritizes everyone else over the top, right? You give and you give and you give so that you're modeling the example of how you want to be treated, but you're boundaryless. There's not a lot of reciprocity in your relationships. You feel like the only way to be prioritized is if you prioritize every single other person in your life kind of to the max, right? Do so, you believe in the... Um, I, do you believe in the love language theory? Because it kind of reminds me of that, like giving love the way you want to receive love. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that there's a lot of value to it. Obviously, it resonates for so many folks, this idea that like, yeah, the ways in which I received love growing up or didn't receive love growing up is going to play into the ways in which I give and receive it or the ways that I want to. Um, so yeah, there's, there's relevancy to that. Mm-hmm. I know people don't like necessarily abide by it you know, they're like, here are other ways in which I want to feel loved or all five of them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think there's resonance there for sure. The, uh, yeah, Sarah? No, I don't know. This okay. is so good. I think I need you to be my therapist. <laughs> also, I need to. We're going deep. Yeah, I need um, to. No, keep going. Do you, should I touch on the trust and the safety yeah, please. really fast? Keep us through. Okay, and I, really, so trust and I, also, I don't know if it's part of it, but I really want us to talk about jealousy too, because I think that's a big yeah. one. No, well, really fast, right? Like a trust wound is when there is a betrayal that takes place, right? Whether it's deceit, um, lies, right? It's like, it's the thing that ruptures our ability to trust other folks. And, you know, present day people, you know, are you constantly checking somebody's text messages? Are you looking at their emails? Are you always waiting for the other shoe to drop? The opening story that I share in the book outside of my own is about a client of mine, Natasha, who's presenting for therapy because she is in a relationship with this guy, Clyde. He is about to propose. She's coming in. She's like trying to figure out, do I stay in this relationship or not? And she keeps saying, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's wonderful. There's no red flags, but like, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So start asking her about, well, did the other shoe drop in other relationships? The other shoe drop in your family? She's like, why do we have to talk about my family? My family was great. No, like, let's just keep making this, you know, going down this path and decide whether or not I should stay with him. Fast forward through some sessions and she finally shares with me, there's this opening that when she was a teenager, she was using her dad's computer. She's, his email was open. She stumbles upon an email between her dad and a woman who's not her mom. And it's revealing this like intense affair that's been going on for so long, shattering the image of her family, shattering the image of her dad. She held him on such a pedestal. This guy who was always home, whatever, by 5 p.m., having dinner with his family, seemingly loving being a father and a husband and all the things. she never spoken that out loud to anybody in her life until that moment in therapy. And it all clicked in, right? That like, this was the other shoe dropping, right? That even though the people who present in the way that they're fantastic partners, they're smart, they're kind, they're thoughtful. She was attracted to him. There was a great future ahead. She was waiting for the other shoe to drop because trust had been betrayed in such a significant way. She had to absorb that secret. He asked her to, the father asked her to keep it from her mom and her sister. And so much so that she almost like absorbed it and forgot about it, right? Like she never spoken it. And that's why it was so hard for her to identify why there was such a struggle with trust, 
right? And so again, it's like looking to the past, understand what are the things that have disrupted my relationship with trust? Hi, who has lied to me? And it can be big things like an affair or it can even be a parent who promises something and doesn't follow through, right? Like simple stuff, right? Like a parent, not, and then doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't own it. And it's repeated over and over and over again, right? These things that just rupture the trust. And then the last wound is the safety wound, which is a really delicate and tender one. Obviously, when we're talking about the absence of safety, we are also often talking about abuse, emotional, psychological, physical, sexual, et cetera. So this is a this is a tough chapter that I, you know, encourage people to be super careful and tender with. But essentially the wound is the belief that other people do not care or have concern for your overall well-being, right? That they are not honoring and respecting your overall well-being. And, you know, yeah, it's a lot of recklessness, negligence, abuse. And, you know, we oftentimes put massive walls up, right? When we can't you know, there's trust intersection with safety, but when we can't trust people around us and we don't feel safe and secure in this world. Um, so those are the five wounds that I cover. When you say that too, it's like, it's just such a reminder because it's so easy to feel resentful about your childhood. It's so easily mm-hmm. to feel like, why me? I just wanted to have, but then when you talk about the safety aspect of it, it's like mm-hmm. Aaron and I were safe. We were loved. We did have two parents who loved us. Okay, fine. We felt it was conditional a lot of the time, but it wasn't really. Like we had two parents who we knew would jump in front of a bus for us. Mm -hmm. We had Mm -hmm. two parents. We were not abused physically. We were not, I mean, we we were taken care of, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. like- there really are such levels and it doesn't mean to say that we didn't have trauma and all those things, but like we really mm-hmm. were lucky in the big picture. Like so many people have it so much worse. So I just wanted to put that out mm-hmm. there that mm-hmm. we're dealing with our own shit, of course, but like well, we also, also are so lucky yeah. that we did really have the childhood that we had. Yeah, I think also, you know, it's so... Hard. I'm curious what you're, because I'm kind of generalizing here based mm-hmm. on the minimal experience I've seen around with friends and stuff, but I'm curious what your take is on it, is that um, it's really hard for moms that tend to absorb all mm-hmm. of the anger mm-hmm. that their kids have because there's this, I watch it in friends and we definitely did this, where like your mom is the one who's there for you. Your mom mm-hmm. is the one who, you know, is consistent and the dad has done something shitty or left or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the kids idolize the dad and despise the mom. Yeah, but I even know mm-hmm. why. Cause you because you think you that know your, your mom's, mom's not, not going, going anywhere. anywhere. You know, it's safe to beat her up. So dad is gonna not call you for yeah. a month. If, if you talk like, to him sideways, he'll yeah. not talk to you for three months. But if you talk mm-hmm. to her sideways, she'll she'll keep being there on the next morning. And and like our mom mm-hmm. listens to this podcast and I know she says sometimes it's so hard for her to hear us, you know, our, the way we remember our childhood and the mm-hmm. things we did. She's like, I, I made you feel safe. I try, I did this, I did mm-hmm. that. And like, sometimes even just her being so consistent pissed us off, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes right. her being so available to us made us mm-hmm. mad that she wasn't doing more for herself. You know, we've even mm-hmm. blamed her for being like, well, now we're adult women. And, and we didn't watch a mom who like, you know, fucked off and went on girls trips and had her own life mm-hmm. and did this. But like, if she had done that, we would be upset about that. Like we, we blame yeah. her for things that it's like, you know, I have girlfriends who the dad is the their the father of their kids is like doing a terrible job and the kids mm-hmm. are mad at the mom all the time. And it's so fucking hard. 
It is. Well, this is probably a really nice moment for your mom. Yeah, <laughs> she's seriously. Right? She's got a little bit of acknowledgement mm-hmm. and um, yeah, like a bit of compassion from the two of you. But yeah, right. It's like when you're in the home with the children, right? It's like they're experiencing so much pain around what is happening. And because you're there, right? And and yeah, nailed it, Sarah, right? It's like the consistency. I know that I can be however I need to be and you're going to remain. Is it part of the work for really? Like when you go to Hoffman, Mm -hmm. part of the work Mm -hmm. is really finding compassion for what your mom and dad went through, right? Mm -hmm. And I love my mom and dad. Like I would say I have really in in the big picture- like good relationships with my parents. Like we go through a lot of shit. I have resentment. They have whatever, like, of course there's stuff, but in the big picture, if something happened to either one of my parents, I would be incapacitated, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but that's going to be the next phase for me is diving in to finding compassion for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, you know, when we understand context and we can get to a place where there's compassion, right? It's like, I am always reminding people that context compassion is not an excuse, right? But there's, um, at the end of the book, I, I share this exercise from psychotherapist Michael Kerr. And he says, think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter and see how your perspective shifts. And I think that's a beautiful offering, right? And again, it's not to create excuses for people's behaviors and the things that happen. But it's a brilliant reminder that we all have a story, that we were all tiny humans at some point going through painful experiences, traumatic experiences, that we grew up in a family system that was highly imperfect, right? And so, yeah, that's a powerful stage to get to at some point. We generally don't start there. Um, It cannot be the excuse for us not honoring our pain, but it's a beautiful place to go to, to remember that like, yeah, we were all tiny humans at some point and we have a very rich and complex story that plays into why we chose certain things, behaved certain ways, believed many of the things that we believed. What do we get out of blaming our parents for everything? Like what it's our life to live. Right. So you can look at them and be like, wow, they really fucked me up here, here and here. At the end of the day, like, well, you can make up for it. It's like all about how you're living present. I think parents can make up for it. No, but I'm saying like, I, Sarah's in a much more blaming place than I am in our lives right today. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I processed things. I was a really angry teenager, very, very Mm -hmm. angry teenager. I was mad at everybody. And as an adult, I just don't want to live like that anymore. As an adult, mm-hmm. I'm like, I've carried so much rage in me that I'm working to like remove from myself because mm-hmm. I can't live with it anymore. So I yeah. don't want to be angry at everybody. I don't want to be angry at my parents. I don't want to be at odds with them. So even when they do things that I don't love, I kind of like am in an acceptance place with them. Like mm-hmm. I don't feel like my needs aren't being met and I don't feel like in a blaming state. Sarah starting therapy so much later is currently in her blaming state. And it's hard for us because we see it differently. Yeah. I mean, when we're in the blame space, what winds up happening is it requires us to still stay in a victim position, which is hard because it's really that position doesn't open up for growth and healing and all the things, which is okay. We are allowed to hang out in that space for a period of time, but it's not the place where peace, internal freedom, all of those things exist. Where there's a divergence here is like, and I, and Sarah, you tell me if this is 
um, if this resonates for you, because I was here for a long time, kind of hooking back into particular dynamics, because ultimately I feel like I want a parent to acknowledge my pain. I want them to take ownership for something. I want them to see me, hear me, understand me. And there's a tremendous amount of grief when a parent or the person who contributed to our pain in the first place is not able to go there. And we stay in this loop of cycling and dancing in this space. Look, when it comes to your parents... I'm not going to change my mom or dad. They are who they are. And they're good people, right? Like they are good people at their core. My mom and dad are good people. They are like Mm -hmm. truly like good natured people Mm -hmm. who are flawed as we all are. But I'm actually not. Yeah. But you're nailing it because what you're saying is you're you're having to release the control but releasing control means that you then have to grieve the fact that things are not going to be different. Yeah. That I they're think, not look, going to yeah. change. Right. I, yeah. And that's what you're talking about. Aaron, Aaron is like, you're at the place where you're like, I, you're not going to change. I know that. And I'm in that position. And so I don't need to engage with you in the same way. It doesn't mean that it doesn't rub you. It doesn't mean that it doesn't activate something within you, but you don't hook back into the loop. Right. And Sarah, for you, part of it is like to get to a place where we don't need to control what they're doing anymore. All right. I am very passionate about all of the toxic stuff that kids eat. And, you know, we always think about um, we think about the dangers of big pharma, but we forget about the dangers of wellness brands, too. There's a lot of wellness brands that do a lot of greenwashing that pretend that they're healthy, but they also have a ton of crap on them. And it's really really scary. It confuses confuses parents. Yeah. Well, also, it's really, it's one thing with like our food, but with kids' vitamins that they're basically, all these companies are making these vitamins, which are essentially candy in disguise. There is like more sugar in like half of these kids' vitamins than in a freaking Kit Kat. It's really crazy. So Haya being Haya, we're like, no, we have to change the game here. Like our kids can't be digesting this kind of shit. So um, it's a pediatrician approved, super powered chewable vitamin. Okay. Um, Haya is made with zero sugar, zero gummy junk, yet it tastes like amazing. You know, my kids have had them. They hate taking their vitamins. What kid loves taking their vitamins? But look, the reality is a lot of these kids, I'm sorry to say, are deficient. And you really do need to replace your vitamin D, your vitamin B, your all these vitamins and because our food has less nutrients in it. That's why so many people are so deficient in so many things. Non-GMO, so, non-GMO, which is huge, nut-free, everything you can imagine. Okay, so these vitamins, they have 15 essential vitamins and minerals. That is vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate. This helps you with your immunity, your energy, your brain function, your mood, your concentration, your teeth, your bones. I mean... Got to give it to the kids. Mm-hmm. So we've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You can receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you have to go to HayaHealth.com slash foster. This deal is not available on the regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-L-T-H.com slash foster and get your kids the full body nourishment that they need to grow into healthy adults. 
article. So here's what this company does. It's really interesting. They basically cut out the middleman, right? Which is how they're able to keep prices what they are. The prices do not reflect the furniture. Like it's crazy. Well, it, yeah, it just doesn't reflect it. It's like you look at it and you're like, what's the catch? How is this only this price? This doesn't even make sense. But it's really smart how they've done that, right? No, um, it's sort of like, what are those things? The the little side sofa table things. Those are so chic. The boot Ottoman. Line. Yes. The boucle ottoman. Chef's well, I have two of their ottoman. I have like moss green ottomans and they I get know. compliments on them often. I know. You can organize your bedroom, your living room, dining room, dressers, nightstands, sideboards, all the things to get. Sideboard. That's what I was trying to get from them. Yeah. It's very modern. It's like that modern, like. No, it's not just modern. It's it's literally everything. They have well, modern. You know, but I find it to be modern and cozy. That's how I but would they don't just have modern. They have all different kinds of design. I know, but the aesthetic feels very clean. It doesn't feel like well, anti- they have everything. They have modern. They have farmhouse. They have mid-century. They have Hedge all stone. of it. Boho. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim it, you can visit article.com slash foster and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. That is article, A-R-T-I-C-L-E dot com slash foster for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. At the core of jealousy is some form of insecurity that's playing out. Always. And so when you, always, right? And so when we think about like, okay, where, where have I been jealous before? And what is that activating within me? So maybe I'll put the question actually back on, to the two of you of where you noticed yourselves most jealous growing up and maybe where you noticed yourself most jealous now, present Interesting. day. I was million percent the most jealous of Sarah. Is that true? Okay. 100%. It's, it's so hard for me to hear that. Yeah. It's I was the most jealous for Sarah, of Sarah for sure. And, and I didn't like what it brought out in me, you know, cause it's like mm-hmm. jealousy is a really unattractive quality to see mm-hmm. and to also feel in yourself. Cause it's like, you can't control yeah. it. But like Sarah always got more attention than me in a million different mm-hmm. ways. And so today as an adult, I try so hard. It's a, it's the reason why I try so hard to embrace my age, to embrace who I am, to be really authentic is because mm-hmm. I never like liked myself as a kid. I wanted to be Sarah. So now as an adult, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I don't want to be Sarah. I want to be me. I'll, and I don't want to be that person. That's I want to be me. Oh, sorry about that. Um, but I don't want to be this person or that person. Like I've learned to, maybe sometimes I overcorrect, by being mm-hmm. like, I like authenticity is like such a huge part of my personality now because I don't want to be that person anymore. Like I mm-hmm. didn't like that, that 14 year old self that like hated her sister because she was jealous right. of her. Like, I don't want that. you jealous of me because I, you felt like I like got out. I like escaped. And no, like- I didn't want to escape, honestly. Mm. No, I really, I really just felt jealous because you, everything was easier for Sarah. Like she -hmm. was good at every sport. I was bad at every sport. She got straight A's. I got C's and D's. She got so Mm -hmm. much attention from boys and like the boys I liked, like had crushes on her. Like I just felt like I couldn't win. So, so I really tried to go a separate route and like, okay, what's my thing? Like I can't win in any of Sarah's I was unaware of this. Like Mm -hmm. I I was never like, oh my God, my, like this was not Mm -hmm. a dynamic that I was even aware of. Yeah, because you you weren't paying attention to me. But, but, but honestly true. Like I did not grow up thinking, (laughs) no, but it's true. No, no, here's the thing. Sarah was a really, really big part of my narrative growing up and I was not a part of her narrative growing up. And and I respect Mm -hmm. that now. But as a kid, it obviously like, you know, broke my heart. But right. 
I have worked so hard. I'm so embarrassed of who I was as a teenager because I, mm-hmm. I don't Every, like, I think everybody is. I don't like that person like <laughs> at all. It like brought out the worst in me. So as an adult, I try so hard to like not be competitive and like not be jealous mm-hmm. and, and, and you're not, and try to be happy for other people when they have the things that mm-hmm. I want and like not, you know, and like let Sarah have attention or have her moments oh, without me like, thank you so much, you know, taking them from her because that's what I would have done when I was a 13 year old, you know, or like, or sabotaged it somehow, you know, someone right. could be like, Oh, Sarah is really pretty. And I'm like, she's a fucking bitch. You know, you yeah. shouldn't be friends uh-huh. with her. And then I'm right. like embarrassed. I'm like, Oh my God, I was like shit talking my sister. I'm like, four, you know, I'm 14 mm-hmm. years old, but that is probably shit talking me into the twenties. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But, but I don't think it's an act when you like Aaron really is not competitive and Mm -hmm. really isn't jealous and genuinely like feels her friends wins, like her girlfriends Mm -hmm. wins, like who maybe Mm -hmm. don't feel hers in return, but she feels them like you authentically are that person. You're not trying to take on the, so like you taught yourself to be that way clearly because you didn't, Mm -hmm. where'd you learn it? Where'd you learn that? I mean, I, I, cause I, you did grow up jealous. Yeah. I mean, I really learned not only of me, but of your step siblings. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I just really didn't like who I was. And then I just well, don't want to be that person anymore is really where it comes from. It doesn't mean that it goes away. I still have those feelings come up of like the surge of jealousy or the surge of competitiveness and like, and it can come up with Sarah still too. But I, but, but I, I, yeah. I really, I feel like there's that second voice that goes like, mm, no. Don't go down that road. I also feel like you've kind of, and please correct me if I'm wrong here. I also kind of feel like, and you're going to deny it. So (laughs) this might not even be a point to saying this, but I think you've also like attached yourself to this narrative more than it actually was. Like this whole like idea of like, I didn't like who I was. I was terrible. You were like a great kid. Everybody liked you. You were always funny. You were like the cutest by far of you, me, Aaron, and you, me, and Jordan. Like you were the blonde, the little blonde. Like you've, I think, gotten really comfortable with this narrative, like, because it's kind of like a good story. And I'm not saying that it it wasn't real for you, but you got a lot of attention. You were the cute, funny one. You were the, like, I feel like everyone's favorite in a lot of ways. A lot of family members, like our aunts were all, it was Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. (laughs) So I just don't know if, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say. I'm not calling bullshit on how you viewed yourself, but I think you've kind of like, like added on to it in a way because it's kind of like safe Mm -hmm. or it's like a good story for you. But like that actually you weren't this like little ugly duckling who just no one, you were like a beautiful, funny, cool, like mom's Mm -hmm. favorite for sure. Anyways, I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, right, both of you are revealing, you know, your experiences of each other. You know, this is how you internalized it. And then do we just look for other data points to support the story that we already have when we're kids? Like, yeah, probably a little bit, but it doesn't change that there was jealousy there for you. And I think a lot of times jealousy puts us into contact with our worthiness wound, right? And I think about what you're describing right now when it doesn't mean that you never have moments of trigger or activation where you're like, oh, there's that thing, but then you find a way to turn away from it. And I think, I wonder if in your work on yourself, you have spent much time finding your worth outside of comparison with others, you know? And that's what I hear when you talk about it is like why jealousy isn't as intrusive now today is because there is this part of you that probably has a belief system about yourself that is fairly strong. It doesn't mean that you don't ever have insecurities. It doesn't mean that you don't ever dip down. But when that 
little piece comes in and is like chirping inside and trying to bring you down. Part of the work is about bringing ourselves back up, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of being focused on someone else, right? And like, that's the work of worthiness, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we can't outsource our worth, right? That like being jealous of someone else and either trying to bring them down or just bringing ourselves down is not an answer, right? That is not something that we, that's going to help us. That's going to support us. That's going to grow us, heal us, et cetera. And so without knowing what your work is, that's my, that's my guess, right? Is that like you found a way to have a new belief system about yourself that had you stand on your own two feet apart from other people, right? That your worth wasn't dependent on your comparison to others, that your worth and your value in the world got to stand on its own two feet. Yeah. And that you come back to that over and over again, anytime jealousy tries to yeah. creep in. That, that's very accurate. Listen, very even, accurate. even talking about it is uncomfortable for me because because I don't mm-hmm. like the narrative that I was jealous of Sarah. And it's something I used to deny yeah. so much. And it would like rile me up. Mm-hmm. And I feel even like a lot of people are jealous of their older sister. This is a pretty, well, whatever. Probably just, a, it know. doesn't matter. I'm just saying for me, I didn't like that yeah. narrative. And so I used to deny it all the time. And mm-hmm. even like Sarah sitting here being like, you know, and I was the pretty one, like that would have been so hard for me to hear 10 years ago, mm-hmm. like 10 years ago, that would have enraged me. It would have made me so mad because it's like, I don't like that narrative. And Mm -hmm. today sitting here at 40, I'm like, okay, I feel that thing come up that I don't really like the idea that hundreds of thousands of people are going to hear that. But then Mm -hmm. the second thought is that like, I don't think we have that many listeners. Okay, good. All right. (laughs) Um, I don't like that. And it makes me uncomfortable. But then the second thought is kind of like, it doesn't have to be a big deal if you don't make it a big deal. Like, I don't want to, inf- I don't want to inflame that as it, as it, it the, suddenly defines me because it's mm-hmm. one little part of me, but like, I don't want to, I don't want my whole day to be ruined. If, if but someone you makes guys a comment. were always the one saying it to me, you guys were always like, like, I, I, it's not like I grew up thinking like, Oh, I'm a supermodel. Like I did not think that like that was on. Yeah, to, like, you did. No, I didn't. That's actually not true. Well, you guys were me. always the ones who were like, Oh, Sarah's the pretty one. Or Sarah's so tall or Sarah's mm-hmm. the this or shit mom or dad would say. Like, you guys were the ones that kind of like said that. It's not like I was that pretty. You really weren't that pretty. I don't know why I know. we made such a big it's deal crazy. out of you. I look back at pictures and like, I'm like, what was the, like all I the know. hype about? I know, literally like you're way prettier now than you were when you were like 18. I'm like, uh, model? Like, I don't see it. Okay, you just- Oh, I took it too far. Yeah, you just- Okay, took, okay, all right. <laughs> we we, we found the spot. But I, oh, God. There's one of the things that you're pointing to, Erin, that's really valuable for people listening is that when- there is a big reactivity that we experience, that reactivity is an indicator that a wound is activated, right? That like it needs more healing. And that's what you did. Now it rubs you, right? It's like, there's like a little nudge. Sarah says it, I was the pretty one. And you're like, okay, I feel that. But it's not a huge reaction inside of you, which lets us know that you've tended to that worthiness wound enough Right. So that you're able to keep going with this interview and, yeah. you know, still hang out with each other afterwards. Or it's just and- that I have wrinkles now. So she's less, you know, she's less threatened. <laughs> no, it's true. I think it's important for people to like understand that the work that I've done on myself and that I think the work that you help people do, it's mm-hmm. not about making your buttons go away. Cause like your buttons no. are always going to be there. Mm. It's like, allowing someone to push it and then you recover or yeah. like making the buttons a little bit smaller, a little harder to find. Yeah. Like yeah. I, they're all there. I, and the work I do is like 
and I've talked about this, that I've been doing, I shouldn't say doing DBT therapy, but like doing DBT skills training. And a lot of that is like being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So that feeling comes up and my instinct is to like make a joke or I like, I blush a lot. Like I would turn really red or I would get mad or I would pick a fight or be defensive. And it's this new concept of like, okay, I didn't like that. I don't like how it feels. And then you just sort of sit with it. And then you just sort of like accept it. And then when you accept it, it kind of feels smaller than you thought it was going to feel, or it just kind of goes away. I describe it as the charge changing, you know, that like over time, as you do that work, like the charge shifts and it's hold on you shifts. And when you have the awareness, like engaging in it, like the, the ways in which I would engage with my mom in conflict at times, it's like, I would jump at it, right? There was like a reactivity, the button was pushed and I am in, right? And now I don't engage. I don't get hooked into Mm -hmm. the pattern or the loop at all. And that's because I'm aware and there's a conscious decision of if I engage in this, I know where it goes, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, it brings me to suffering. It does not bring me to peace. Right. But again, with the, the healing work that we do, it, the charge lessens and the hold that it has on us starts to weaken. Mm -hmm. We are much more in the driver's seat and yeah, just, it sounds like you've done really beautiful work. I think jealousy presents itself in so many like dynamics and so many different relationships. Mm -hmm. Like we talk a lot about women feeling competitive with other women, with other women where there's, there's no, um, history. Right. And Mm -hmm. we see it a lot in LA, you know, a lot of competitive, you know, Aaron and I have said some of our worst experiences in business have been with other women, not with Mm -hmm. other men. You know, it's been other women that have made us feel small and made us feel like we don't belong or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So how can we help our female listeners be able to identify, right? Why they're feeling this way, why they're making other women feel small and how mm-hmm. not to do that or how to not be affected by, you know what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think understanding the source feels important, right? Like mm. if somebody else is winning, what does that bring up within me? If someone else is achieving, what's the like? What's the thing that that brings me into contact with, right? If somebody else is successful, right? Like what fear does that present for me, right? What's the story? You know, in narrative therapy, we talk about like, what's the story I'm telling myself about it, right? This was made famous by Brene Brown. Um, And it's a really great prompt, right? Like, what's the story I'm telling myself? And so, yeah, in this competitive culture, when we have, you know, obviously in LA, there's a lot of, you know, high achieving performers. And right, when we see somebody else performing well, why does that communicate that you are failing, right? Why is that not something that just exists independent from one another? So and true. So I just, Erin just got back. She just said something so profound. Why is it that when we see other women performing well, doing well, achieving something, it makes us feel like we're failing mm-hmm. instead of just going, oh, we're also winning, but it's like, mm-hmm. right? Like, right, right. And so, right. So this like space for both of us. So for me, the way that I would think about this is like understanding the origin story around why there isn't space for you, right? Like, so were you compared as siblings, for example, right? Like a little bit of like, ooh, like 
there's that little activation button that can, that can get activated. Mm-hmm. Were you compared to other kids in your school? What happened when somebody did better than you? Did a parent become critical of you, mm-hmm. right? Or if you were not achieving at a high level, right? Were you verbally abused? Were you put down? Were, did you lose connection and validation and approval? Like some of the things that I was saying before. So when Jealousy is tied to worth and worth is tied to performance, to success, to achievement. And then that's tied to love, connection, Mm. validation, right? Like you can see why all of those like underpinnings and all of the like underground tunnels, like get us to this place of needing to either bring other people down, not cheer for them because it feels like it's tipped. Uh, strips away or chips away at our own self. Mm-hmm. There's layers. Everybody's story is different as to why I cannot celebrate you, why your success determines, like says something about me, but I would encourage people to start with understanding the origin story around your worth. Um, Jealousy too. I mean, right now you're talking about jealousy of like other women. Sometimes it can be within partnership, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that to me probably is more tied to our relationship with trust mm-hmm. as well. So worthiness and trust wounds are really common. We'll, common. we'll see them with jealousy quite a bit. But yeah, right. So like look at the origin wound. See, I think to what you were saying, you know, your work, Erin, has been how do I exist separate from others, right? Like how do I pull my worth up so that I don't feel like I am smacked down, hit by something when somebody else is doing well, when mm-hmm. somebody else is achieving, when somebody else is getting attention, I don't feel like you're rocked when other people are achieving. Like, I really think you're really actually very happy for those people. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like, I'm by no means perfect at it. I still struggle with it. But I Mm -hmm. think that I just honestly, like, as I think in some ways it probably comes from somewhere unhealthy too, because Sarah always excelled at everything. I decided Mm -hmm. I didn't care about anything because if I don't Mm -hmm. care about school, then it's okay that I'm failing at it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I don't care enough about about success. I don't care enough about accomplishing things because if I care Mm -hmm. and I fail, then I'm going to be embarrassed. But if I didn't care, then it's okay. But it makes it hard for me to celebrate things. You know, when something good happens Mm -hmm. and people are like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. I'm like, well, you know, and I always say like the downside, well, it's not as good Mm -hmm. as that thing or well, it's not, you know, like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. I don't like tie too much of my happiness to that because then what if it falls apart? Cause I was never good at anything as a kid. So I'm not really used to being like the winner. I'm used to being the loser and I'm more comfortable there if I'm being honest, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, maybe I'm not competitive, but like it also, like you were saying, like there's always some disalignment. Mm -hmm. Is that what you said? Mm Mm-hmm. Misalignment, yeah. Misalignment in 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 some areas. So then, what are you jealous? Because she asked actually, and we're as we're, we're very we're terrible interviewers, if you haven't noticed. But she asked, "What were you jealous of as a kid, and what are you jealous of now? Mm. What are you jealous of now?" I, I'm honestly really jealous of of people who are able to um, like disagree with someone and not lose their cool. Mm-hmm. Someone who mm-hmm. can respect someone's opinion that they you know, find atrocious someone that like, I'm not good at that. Like I put Aaron at a conservative dinner, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, 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 that's my struggle is like staying calm, cool and collected and not judging other people Mm -hmm. and like respecting where someone else is coming from. I have a really hard time with it. And Mm -hmm. I'm jealous of people who can like comfortably apologize and who can, you know, respect someone's different opinion and not like, like I, that's the thing that I'm working on with my therapist through DBT skills training, which is like, 
is that the goal of any interaction is that you have to feel good about yourself afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's not about like Mm -hmm. saying the right thing. It's not like, what does that look like to you? Maybe that looks like, you know, proving your point calmly, or maybe Mm -hmm. it looks like respecting the other person. Like you have to walk away and not spiral afterwards. What does that look like? That's what I'm working on. How full circle though, right? Because like it brings us right back to your wound, right? Like when you are jealous, right? The thing that's getting activated, why can I make space for people to have differences of opinion, to disagree, right? It's like, no, no, disagreeing makes you the problem, makes you wrong, right? And like, there we are right again, back to the wound is like, beautiful. It's like you have beautiful awareness of it. And it's like, it it's the arrow that just keeps pointing us back to what continues to need more and more resolution when it does show up. But I think you also just revealed how you protect yourself from it is by, okay, I can cheer for everybody else because that's actually an easier place for me to exist. And so I think you're pointing at an area of, well, wait, how can you take risks, right? Instead of hiding in the like second spot, you know, like how can you take risks? Because what you're doing is avoiding failure by shrinking yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. I guess we're all really fun. I up. was always jealous of people na- <laughs> like that had unconditional love. Like mm-hmm. the families that I attached myself to were not the families who were like, where the kids were just like allowed to do whatever they wanted or mm-hmm. like I attached myself yeah. to Jen and Sarah Meyer, unconditional love from their mom and dad. Kate, mm-hmm unconditional love from her mom and dad, Jacqueline Wishnow. Mm-hmm. These were families that were families mm-hmm. that did family dinner every night. Like I was, a, I attached myself to the families that literally had family dinner every night. Like I didn't yeah. attach myself to the crazy families where like the kids could just get away with anything. Even though when we had family dinner, she refused to show up. Cause I didn't, uh, well, I know you didn't want to from you didn't us. feel. No, it's no, it's cause I, our family was broken. It was mom and it was you and Jordan. And mom was upset all the time, wishing she still had her family. Mm-hmm. So it was an incomplete family. So it was like a reminder of mom felt like things were missing at that table. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, I can't even deal with that. I, I it's, I can't even deal with mm-hmm. like this incompleteness. So I'm going to just go find completeness. Like I'm going to go find it. Like, and again, I didn't know this a few years ago in my mind. I was like, what was my problem? Like, and and Mm -hmm. it really has taken so much peeling back to figure out like, why, why did I not want to be around? Why I had like so many good things to be around for, you know, Mm -hmm. but that, that, that was my jealousy. And then now I guess I'm jealous of people who are doing things that I wish I was doing or that I felt like I'm capable of doing, but I'm like too scared to, or I'm whatever. Mm. Like professionally? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just in that. No. And like, like amazing family units, like great. Mm. Like, I don't know. Just yeah. In everything. Mm-hmm. Well, you decided to share the example of amazing family units, right? And it's like, it brings you right back to it. It's like you, you're seeing the loop is where I'm jealous is where I still hold a lot of pain. And, you know, whether it's what you were jealous of growing up and where you attached yourself to what, when you look around and you see family units operating in a way that feels smooth and expansive and beautiful and amazing. Right. And even though you can sit here and say, like, I know that I'm a great mom, right. Like it's, there's still that insecurity, right. That presents itself and you look to others as like doing it, I don't know, doing it better or having it more put together or I don't know, whatever, what would you say? 
I don't know. I mean, I think like, and Erin said this to me before, she's like, oh, all of a sudden now you want the cleavers? Like you never, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But it's like, I always actually did. And I am jealous. It. I hate that people look at our family as Jesus, their fucking family. Oh my God, mm-hmm. it's so blah, blah, blah. How do you deal? How do you... That doesn't feel good. Like a lot of people have a lot of things to say about our family, to our face, behind our back, in the press, whatever it is. We're this like dysfunctional, oh God, poor you. I mean, on a regular basis, Mm. people are like, oh my God, like, are you okay? You know, whatever. And it sucks. Like I am jealous of just really normal families. Yeah. Yeah. I always say like when stuck grieve more when activated grieve more when you know it's like grief is such the answer for so many things and yeah like I appreciate both of you being so honest and vulnerable and you know talking openly you have a lot of insight and a lot of awareness of things I know you feel like you're late to the game but there's you know there is a lot of awareness but there's also a lot of pain that still needs you know processing and and grieving and yeah you've been very I hear that uh, loud and clear selfish with your time because we've actually made this all about us mm-hmm. and the audience asked 9000 questions so we're going to have to have you back can we ask just a few audience that we can not rapid fire, but like, yeah, yeah. Can you? Let's do okay. It. Um, okay. Also, like, should you be our therapist as like sisters? <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm pretty sure we need you. So, can we do like session family therapy as many people in the room as possible? Oh my god. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Oh my god. So, terrifying. if someone's listening to this and they've never mm-hmm. even started, and they're listening to this, and then they're like, oh god, I have all these wounds. Like, let's not give a really long answer here, but like, <laughs> what is the first step? Like just, okay. just like, what is the first step? Okay. One of my favorite questions was a big question that was asked of me when I was doing this work was what did you want the most as a child and not get? Okay. Big feelings, lots of stuff that can come up there, but that's such a good question to point you in the direction of your wounds. And the other one that I would say is like where you notice the most reactivity in your life is also going to point you to unresolved pain. <sighs> okay. Um, okay. So how do you suggest to, so someone wrote in and said, how do I suggest my, my mom go to therapy? What do you do if you have a parent that is just not doing the work, but you want them to, is it even worth it to suggest? Um, sure. You can suggest, of course, you can present any information to anyone you want, but also probably a lot of this work is about releasing the control and accepting where people's limitations, blocks, constraints are. It's sometimes we try to really overfunction in this space to do everything we possibly can. Can I find the therapist for her? Can I send her these articles? Can she listen to this podcast with a therapist on it? <laughs> right? Like all of the things. And sometimes this is more about just getting to a place which is lots of heavy lifting, but a place of accepting where somebody is and then obviously grieving what that means for the future of your relationship. And would you say also like, like for instance, I really wanted Sarah to go to therapy for a long time because I was in therapy mm-hmm. so much. And I watched her struggling and suffering through things Mm -hmm. that I knew therapy could help with. But I knew I can't say to Sarah, like, go to therapy because she would be like, fuck you. Right. And so instead, I was just like, would talk to her about the therapy that I was going to and the things that I would learn and stuff. And then one day I was like praying that she would be like, I want to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And then one day she was like, should I start seeing that therapist? I was like, yes, 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 yes. It Uh worked. Oh, my God, it worked. And it was like she just watched how I was helping me and then it made it want her want it to help her. 
Yeah. I think it's like, there is so much value to just living it right. To be, to being the model of it and that being a source of inspiration or motivation for someone. Um, so yeah, right. It's like, you can talk about what you're learning, the awarenesses that you're having, the things that are shifting in your life, right? It's like, it was visible to Sarah clearly how much you were stepping into your authenticity, how much you were healing. And so clearly that was motivating for you. So yes, you know, living by example, we can bring someone to water, but we can't make them drink, right? It's like, that's, you can't force someone into it, but you can start to live your life in that way and share about it and talk about mm-hmm. it. And if that's the motivator, beautiful. Okay. My question is that today's Valentine's day and we had an event last night for favorite daughter where we invited a bunch of women to come, um, because Valentine's day can be really depressing and stressful for someone who's single. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to create something that was like fun and positive around it. And we met so many women last night and they're all so great. And, and so many girls that I was talking to were like, I don't know what else I can be doing. I don't want to be that girl that is like desperate and anxious and sad, but I'm, you know, whatever age she was, I'm 36, I'm Mm -hmm. 42, I'm 39, some girl's 29 and she's like, feels like Mm -hmm. it's too late for her. And they're, they're so, they're struggling so much to feel happy in their lives without the partner that they want. And I give them advice, but it's only based on my experiences because I, I did meet my husband so much later that I, you know, I do have some experience in this. Um, Mm-hmm. but I, I, I struggle sometimes because I really see how hard it is. You know, it's really hard it to meet your soulmate, the person you're meant mm-hmm. to be with the person, like you said, the, the perfect puzzle piece to your issues. And I don't know, like, what do you say to someone who I, I look at these girls and I'm like, I, I, I search my brain, like, who can I set them up with? Like, how can mm-hmm. I fix this? I want this girl to feel better. Cause it's so mm-hmm. fucking scary walking the world alone, not knowing where your person is. So what is your, I don't know, like, what is your advice to the person who can't control when it's going to happen? Like, I know, I know it's so hard. And I I do want to validate the fact that it is hard to find partners and that connectivity. Like, it's not just like, go out and make yourself available and all that. And like, it'll fall into your lap, right? Like that doesn't seem to be the experience that most people have. I love this quote from Orson Shire that I will be posting later today, actually, um, which is my alone feels so good. I'll only have you if you're sweeter than my solitude. And that quote was a quote that I lived by when I was single. And it's also one that I live by today, even though I'm partnered. And there's this emphasis on there's a completion or I am worthy, right? Like once I have partnership, there is nothing wrong with wanting partnership, right? Like beautiful, right? It's like, I want to have partnership. Maybe I want to have a family, incredible goals to have. But when there's this idea that I become complete or I become worthy or I'm good enough when I have a partner in my life, right? Like that's going to keep directing us back to a wound that still needs attention. So I would say that one of the goals as frustrating or annoying as it might be is to get to a place where you're alone does feel so good that you don't, you won't trade it unless 
the connection and the partnership or the friendship or whatever it might be is greater than the solitude. There is value in enjoying your solitude. There is value in finding a sense of peace and worthiness and prioritization within yourself. So much of the time we outsource it. And that's where I see people going wrong is like, okay, once this other person comes into my life or once this other person tells me, or once this other person chooses me, then I will be enough. And so I'd encourage people to create that within themselves. Again, layered everything that I say, I know is not easy, right? It's like much easier said than done, but that becomes the work. So yeah, quick answer mm-hmm. is that quote. This made me sad. It's really good. How to forgive my parents for neglect and emotional abuse. I miss them. And I think mm. this is so interesting because if we're being honest, nobody wants to be estranged from their family. Nobody yeah. does. Like that's no, that's not a choice, right? Like, mm-hmm. but I think so many people I know are still so resentful over so many things that it feels powerful to be like, well, I'm not going to talk to you or we're estranged. Like, cause you're like, yeah. I'm now in control and I don't need you. And you think you're like winning some medal mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. taking that line, but it's really mm-hmm. only hurting yourself. And you can see that here with this guy or girl saying like, I miss them. Like, that's so yeah. sad, you know? Like, so I think it, I, I want you to answer, but I think you got to drop the ego with all of these things, mm-hmm. right? Like so many people are operating, I think from like, well, I'll, I'll let the professional answer this. I think it's like, how is this person defining forgiveness? You know, like, what does that actually mean to you? Because if forgiveness for you means that we're saying that every the neglect and emotional abuse were okay, like, of course, that's going to be challenging. But if forgiveness is about accepting that something happened and not needing to say that it was fine or not needing to say that it was, yeah, that it was okay that it happened, right? It's like, there's a value in understanding what that term means. You can feel it, like you said, like this craving to be connected. And I think you're right that like the majority of the time people don't want to be cut off from their family. Like obviously that's an option. And I think if family members are continuing to be abusive, if they're, you know, it's like, yeah, if there's intolerable things that are happening, of course, right, we need to protect ourselves. But I I know that most people do want to have some type of relationship. And I think there that I'd start with the definition of what forgiveness actually means and the agreements for what the relationship are today. What does what does our relationship need to look like in order for us to have contact, right? And can I set can I keep those boundaries? Can I choose not to engage on certain in certain topics? Are you guys treating me differently now as an adult and can I trust that, right? Like has anything shifted or is everything the same? You know, so I imagine that there's a lot that probably needs to be communicated between this person and their parents um, to kind of figure out where there's an opening, what their relationship can look like. But there can be dynamics, even when there's a lot of hurt and harm that happened in the past, where there is a new chapter that we enter into, where there are boundaries, where there are expectations and agreements and rules that make it possible for us to actually exist in a dynamic together. It might not be as close. They might not be able to acknowledge the hurt and harm that they contributed to, but there might be a way to have a nice enough relationship, you know, like one that is like, okay, we spend time together and these are the things that we do, but we don't talk about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So rules, agreements, expectations, and maybe just ones that we hold for ourselves 
God, so many jealousy questions. I mean, it really is just feel jealous of my boyfriend's new family friends who are all girls. Mm. How do I manage that? Like, do I tell him? Like, it's really hard to tell your your boyfriend or I'm jealous of these girls. Mm-hmm. Like, how- okay. Yeah. So yeah, quick answer. Yes. In the same way that you were saying, like, it sucks to be able to say, okay, it is hard for me to hear you say that you're the pretty one. Okay. It's hard for me to say like, yeah, that's stuff we're embarrassed about it. Sometimes we don't, we want to present like we're so cool and unaffected by things. Mm. That was me, right. Where I'm like super unbothered and to say, it's really vulnerable to say, oh my God, I feel insecure about the fact that you have all these female friendships and, oh, like I'm feeling lots of feelings. And that's reminding me of this thing. And I worry that you might be attracted to someone. And like, what if they're attracted to you? Like, of course, that's hard to say out loud. But I would very much encourage the conversation. The vulnerability is so powerful. Granted, it really matters who your partner is, because if they are going to reject it or tell you that you're crazy or you know something like that, obviously, that doesn't feel super safe. But if we have somebody who's able to hear that and tell you more about these friendships and talk about the boundaries that are there or remind you of why they've chosen you or right. Like that's, it opens up a beautiful conversation. And it also is an invitation for the other person to share their insecurities when they come up. The reality of it is, is that like, we all have insecurities that pop up from time to time. And we want to have an environment within our romantic relationships where we can share that with each other. We want to know what is happening in in our own internal worlds and their internal world. That is the stuff that allows for relationships to thrive and develop and expand. And so I get it. It is scary as all hell to say that out loud, but there is so much that can be birthed from that place when you have somebody who can hear it, which I know is not always the case. When you have somebody who can hear it, who can you know, engage in that. But Aaron and I are just learning now what to what you said, that vulnerability is power. Like over my yeah. dead body, what I have spoken, my true insecurities <laughs> to guys in my twenties. Yeah. Right. And one of the guys who I was just always too cool for school with and could never be vulnerable with told me years later, he was like dating this new girl. And I was like, Oh, like whatever. And he's like, you know how, when I knew I was in love with her and I said, when, and he's like, when she said to me, I know you could be with someone like way prettier than me, but like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so happy you chose me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what a loser that she said that. That is crazy. Like I uh-huh. took that as like, what a weak, embarrassing, yeah. but he took it as that she was so secure to be mm-hmm. that vulnerable in that yeah. moment, telling me her biggest fear possible, which is that you could be mm-hmm. with someone prettier than me, but he looked mm-hmm, at her as mm-hmm. that she had never been more beautiful mm-hmm. in that She's admitting her moment. insecurity in that moment instead of pretending to be cool, which right. like, we all kind of pick up on, you know, the energy of someone when they're being disingenuous. We always can pick up when someone's like, you know, boasting or like, mm-hmm. or faking it or, or bragging because they feel insecure. Like it's such a telltale thing. And so I don't, you think like on a human level, it's like, we're not attracted to something that's inauthentic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, like we can sense it. And the reality of it is, is like faking it or pretending doesn't 
actually lead us anywhere good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like all that it leads you to is pretending like you're unaffected by something that is affecting you. Like what do we think that's going to do? Right. It's like, you're going to be totally happy and fine and secure. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. And so, yeah, there's a beauty. Like when we have a depth in relationship where we can hold and tolerate people's insecurities and fears and doubts, right? Like that is the beauty. That is the power because so much is created from that place. Mm-hmm. So interesting. It really is. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we need an entire podcast on yeah. jealousy. Seriously. You know, what? Well, hold on. We do. Yeah. yeah. In all dynamic and in like, there's just so many dynamics where yeah. jealousy is at play. So much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're jealous. You were jealous of your three-year-old niece. I know. It's so like, dark. we gotta, we gotta. I hope she never finds out about that. So Marina doesn't tell her. This podcast will be long gone before her listening days, right? It's like she'll she'd have to go really deep into the archives. True. Oh my god! All right. Well, I we're at the two hour mark. Yeah. But like, Mm. I'm not ready for it to be over. You're amazing. (laughs) On you get us. You just get people. You're incredible. I think you need to come on Mm. once a month. I agree. Thank you for those kind words. It means a lot. I appreciate you saying that and yeah such an honor to be in conversation yeah, with thank both you so you. much this was all right honey we're gonna sell those books of yours not that you need us but no this was really enlightening <laughs> thank you so much for coming oh, on i was so excited about this and you did not disappoint no you did not thank you so much if you like this podcast leave a rating and review this podcast is executive produced by Can you not use that voice i'm sorry i'm trying to sound yeah but you don't need to make it sexy this podcast is executive produced by... Be, can you, do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. Okay, I'll take over. Our, our associate, associate producer is Montana McBurney. See? Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great. 